Good morning. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? I'm enjoying today. Are you enjoying today? And I'm encouraged by uh, what I heard from the women's retreat. It sounds like it was just a, a fantastic weekend for the ladies. I'm, I'm so encouraged that they were able to have such a great time just in fellowship together and in studying the Word of God together. Not too long ago, a, a truck driver was driving, uh, approaching the Holland Tunnel in New York City. And uh, as he was approaching this tunnel, he noticed that the road sign ahead of him suggested that the maximum height of the tunnel was uh, about an inch less than what his truck was. And uh, he, anticipating that the government regulation had probably adjusted it so that maybe it was within a few inches only, he continued to proceed toward the Holland Tunnel, knowing full well he was about an inch too high, according to the posted road sign. And sure enough, as he began to enter the tunnel, uh, he began to slow down. Because, you see, his truck was getting stuck at the clearance of the tunnel. And slowly but surely, as he continued to press on the gas, his truck went slower and slower, scraping the top of the Holland Tunnel until it came to a complete stop. Traffic was backed up for miles. Police, fire authorities came to the scene. They brought engineers to the scene as well, and they all took a look at this truck stuck in the New York City Holland Tunnel and they thought to themselves, how in the world are we going to get this truck out? And they, they, they looked at all of their options. They considered towing the truck back out from where it came. But they didn't know if, if they would find a vehicle powerful enough to, to take it out of the tunnel. Because the, the truck was stuck. We're talking about a semi here. They thought about taking apart the truck piece by piece and lowering it such that they could once again maybe drive it out with half the truck gone. They didn't know what to think. And traffic again is backed up for miles. Hours have gone by. And finally, finally, despite all of their creative efforts, a little girl walked up. She surveyed the scene. And she tugged on one of the engineer's shoulders and said, why don't you just let the tires out? Let the air out of the tires. Boy, I nailed that one, didn't I? Why don't you just let the air out of the tires? Sure enough, they let the air out of the tires, and they were able to drive the truck out of the tunnel. Innovation. Creativity. All of these men and women, fire authorities, engineers, policemen, were thinking left and right, how do we get this truck out? And yet it was a little girl who came up and said, why don't you do something that's outside of the box, if you will? Why don't you do something crazy like let the air out of the tires? And sure enough, it worked. Friends, today we're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that I would like to describe as thinking outside the box. In our scripture today, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, I am going to, to, we're going to enter into a story. 
in which Jesus Christ and His disciples, if you will, are thinking outside the box in terms of how to bring people into the knowledge of God. They're not using conventional means. They're not using man-made wisdom. Jesus and His disciples, as we read this story today in Mark 2, are going to be using creative and fresh measures to make disciples, to make kingdom participants. And the title, as you can see behind me, is Think Outside the Box. We're going to be looking at Jesus' innovative techniques in disciple-making. Take a look at Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 to 22. And then we're going to walk through this text. Let's take a look. Mark 2, 13 to 22 says this. Then he, that is Jesus, went out again by the sea. And all the multitude came to him. And he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and His disciples, for there were many, and they followed Him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw Him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to His disciples, How is it that He eats and He drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then in another story, verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, today we look afresh at Your Word and we see new and fresh ways in which Your Son made disciples on earth. Father, guide the study, I pray. May Your Spirit especially be with us as we read and study Your Word and and apply it to how we also can make disciples, can make kingdom participants in this world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 13 and 14 again of chapter 2. It says, Then Jesus went out by the sea, and all the multitudes came to Him, and He taught them. And as He passed by, He saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax office, and He said to him, Follow Me. And so He arose and followed Jesus. Now, Jesus is still most likely in, in a similar location of the land of Galilee as we, as we left Him last week. He's in and around the town of Capernaum. 
at the northernmost end of the Sea of Galilee. The headquarters, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. And on this particular day, he passes by the tax office. The tax office near Capernaum. Now, Levi was a man uh, who was attending that tax office. He was a, an employee of the Roman government. He was a Jew, but yet he was employed by the provinces of Rome to collect taxes on behalf of their empire. Levi is also uh, known by the name of Matthew, uh, which, we, uh, which you might see those uh, names used interchangeably in the Word of God to describe this apostle, this apostle of Jesus Christ. And Levi, or Matthew, is sitting in his tax office on a major commercial road, if you will, and he is collecting taxes from commerce. He's collecting taxes from merchants who are bringing goods to and from Galilee, both from land and from sea. What's interesting about this uh, is that it is, it is quite likely, although, uh, although it's not mentioned in, in our Gospel texts, it is quite likely that Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John knew exactly who Levi was. Because you see, those four apostles of Jesus Christ, whom have already been following Jesus up until this point, those four men were fishermen. And as they brought in their fish, as they brought in their day's catch, you better believe they were required to walk by the tax office to give an account of their catch for the day and to pay the proper tax. Now you can imagine that uh, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John probably did not have a very high view of, of Levi like we usually don't have a very high view of IRS agents who sometimes audit us and things like that. Now, I personally don't know anyone who works for the IRS. I'm sure they're all wonderful people. But by and large, that profession has a stigma to it, doesn't it? It has some sort of stigma where people just don't like those involved in collecting taxes. It's quite likely that as Jesus walked by this man and pointed to him and said, follow me, that the other four men looked at him and said, Whoa! Hold on here! Not that guy. Not him. He's a traitor. He's working for the wrong empire. He's collecting taxes of our people on behalf of a pagan, Caesar. I ask you the question, do you ever find yourself less than enthused when someone you don't like is called to Christ? Do you ever find yourself less than enthused when a wayward Christian turns from their sin and returns to God? Do you rejoice in those moments? Or are you secretly perturbed by the fact that a sinner has turned to God? I ask that question because I imagine that that was... Perhaps the tendency that the other four apostles had as they saw Levi being called to be an apostle. They were a little bit perturbed probably by it. A little bit, I don't know if that's a good decision. Now he's, he's sinned against our people. He's collected taxes for a pagan empire. Are you perturbed when someone who sins against you comes to faith in Christ? Or do you rejoice? Do you recognize that but for the grace of God, you would not be a believer. 
And so they also have every opportunity, should have every opportunity to come to faith in Christ. I bring this up to make it clear, friends, no matter who has sinned against you, no matter what they've done, no matter what kind of sin they've carried out, we are to rejoice when people come to faith. We are to rejoice when sinners, sinning Christians, turn back to God. It is always the viewpoint that we should have. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, from now on, we regard nobody, no one, according to the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We don't look at people from a fleshly point of view, from a worldly point of view. We don't evaluate them based on what they did to us. Tit for tat, if you will. We look at them through the eyes of Christ. And we rejoice with every sinner who turns to God in faith. Let's move on in our text. Verse 15. It says, Now it happened that he was dining in Levi's house. That many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, he said to his disciples, they said to his disciples, I should say, how is it, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus was concerned with saving the sinner. Jesus was concerned with redeeming people from sin and from death and reinserting them into the world as full kingdom participants. And what was His method? How did He accomplish redemption? How did He accomplish ushering people into the kingdom of God, making them full and complete participants in His work on earth? How did he do it? Did he go into the synagogue? Did he walk into the synagogue, into those holy walls, and preach from there only, and call out for the people to come inside and to receive that message? Did he, did he make the annual trek to Jerusalem and teach and preach and worship in the temple and offer the prescribed sacrifices according to the Torah and, and do all the things from within the confines of that holy, holy place in Jerusalem? Did He keep the message of life and redemption within the confines of synagogue and temple? No. No. He took that message. He took the message of redemption. He took the message of life. He took the message of the kingdom and He took it outside into the community, into the world into the house of the tax collector and the sinner. What Jesus did was precisely what no one in Israel was doing. What Jesus did in seeking and saving the lost, going out to them and finding them and meeting them where they were, what Jesus did, that method was something no one was doing in all of Israel. From the ranking Jewish religious perspective, what Jesus did in eating and dining with these people was ethically and religiously wrong. 
In his day, to eat with tax collectors and sinners was equivalent to accepting them and accepting their lifestyle. It was understood that the company you kept was also the company you approved of. But Jesus didn't accept that perspective. Jesus didn't accept that view, that worldview, that perspective on life. There's a theologian by the name of R.T. France, and he paraphrases another theologian's thoughts on this text, and I was greatly, greatly helped by this. Notice what he says. Jesus' offense in the eyes of the religious establishment was not that he called sinners to repent. That wasn't his offense. But that he summoned them to join his movement without repentance. No one could object to the repentance of sinners. But what they found unacceptable was the breach of social and religious convention into which that mission led Jesus. They stood for the maintenance of the status quo, while Jesus' determination to proclaim the good news of forgiveness where it was needed led Him into conflict with the status quo. You see, friends, they didn't get it. The Pharisees, the scribes, they didn't recognize or perhaps they didn't care that thousands upon thousands of tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, etc. were dying. Were dying. Never having received the message of life. Oh sure, they they preached in the synagogues. They preached that message from the pulpit, if you will. Oh sure, they went to Jerusalem and, and, they, and they followed the Torah and they, and they sacrificed when it was prescribed and they worshipped when it was prescribed and they accomplished every detail of the law when it was prescribed, whether from the Torah or the oral tradition. They did those things. But what these scribes and Pharisees lacked was the ability to recognize that their own uncompromising piety, that their own uncompromising desire for holiness was being accomplished at the expense of a world that was dying. Their own piety was being accomplished at the expense of the eternal destiny of many, many tax collectors and sinners. D.L. Moody was a 19th century uh, American evangelist. Um, you, you certainly have heard of the name. Uh, Moody Bible Institute, you may have heard of as well. Um, D.L. Moody uh, was, um, he was described by a man by the name of R.W. Dale. R.W. Dale was an, uh, an Englishman. He's from London. He was an English congregationalist. And one day, he got a chance to uh, hear D.L. Moody speak. Moody went to England. And R.W. Dale heard Moody speak. And he was speaking on the topic of hell. Speaking on eternal condemnation. And as R.W. Dale would later recount later in his life, he said that D.L. Moody was the only man who ever had a right to speak about hell. Why? Because he said D.L. Moody was the only one who had tears in his eyes as he spoke 
about a lost soul. The only man who had a right to speak on hell because he was the only preacher he ever saw in all of his days who spoke about lost people, about sinners, about dying people, about people who were headed for eternal separation, the only man he saw preach on it who would cry every time he did it. Are we so engrossed in our own piety, in our own obedience, in our own holiness, that we are unable to associate with sinners? Are you able to share a meal with an atheist? Are you able to share a meal with a homosexual? Are you able to dine with an adulterer? Let me take it even further. Um, in our, uh, we're having a seminar on predator-proofing your home, sexual predators. Uh, I, I, of all topics today, that is at the height of political campaigns and talk radio and this, that, and the other. We're, we're, we're a culture that is fearful of sexual predators, and rightly so. Um, the sin that they commit is an incredibly dangerous one. Let's suppose a sexual predator moved in next door to your house. What would your reaction be? Would you, um, would you log on to the Internet and find this person who had just moved next door and realize that he or she is a sexual predator? Would you, would you instantly think, let's ask him or her to move? Or let's put our house up for sale? Let's get out of here? Or would you look upon that person not from a fleshly perspective, not from a worldly perspective, but through the eyes of Christ? Would you look upon that person and say, here is yet one more sinner, albeit a terrible, terrible sin, yet here is one more sinner who is living life apart from reconciliation with Jesus Christ? I'm not suggesting that we compromise the safety of our families. I'm not suggesting that we compromise the safety of our children. What I am suggesting is that if a sexual predator moved next door to Casey and I today, what I would do is I would, at every opportunity I had in discussing and having conversation with that man or woman, I would let them know that I loved them, that I cared for them, and that the reason I did was because I had received forgiveness from Jesus Christ. And I certainly didn't deserve it. How do we view lost people? How do we view sinners? How do we treat them? Are we always looking for their reconciliation? I ask that question. Are you always looking for them to be reconciled? Or are they just someone to avoid? I would speculate that Jesus would find time for a sexual predator. I would speculate that Jesus would dine, if you will, with a sexual predator. Because I believe that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Verse 17. Jesus overhears them. He overhears their comments. He knows that they're asking His disciples, how come you're eating with these people? 
You shouldn't be accepting their lifestyle. And Jesus overhears and He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As one theologian put it, it is ridiculous to imagine a doctor who refuses to meet with his patients. Might I add, it is ridiculous to imagine a Christian who refuses to associate with sinners. Jesus goes on to say, I did not come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus is not suggesting here that the Pharisees to whom He's directing these comments to are already righteous. He's not suggesting this. He is suggesting that they think they're righteous. He is suggesting that they assume that their works righteousness is what is guaranteeing their ticket into the kingdom of God. But Jesus recognized that because of their understanding of righteousness, they are largely incapable of understanding the new teaching that He's bringing with them. The scribes and Pharisees are deluded, deceived into thinking that their pious works of the law guarantee their future glory with God. They've lost sight of the simple teaching of both the Old and the New Testament that justification in the eyes of God comes by faith. Faith. And so rather than waste his time and effort on a people group that were largely unresponsive to his message, Jesus focused on those who definitively knew they were in danger of hellfire. We might liken Jesus' comments in this verse 17 behind me to His comments elsewhere where He says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not cast pearls before swine. Jesus' intent here is to say, Go to those who are responsive. Don't belabor My message with those who are rejecting it time and time and time and time again. Now we come to a second vignette. Verse 18. We come to a second story uh, in this new disciple-making effort of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 18. It says, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and you, presumably Jesus, and the, oh, excuse me, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples and you, Jesus, do not fast? They were obviously including Jesus in this, even though they were referencing the disciples. By the way, this is the first direct exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you notice carefully, earlier on in the book of Mark, the Pharisees are talking, they're thinking in their hearts, they're thinking in their heads, they're asking questions of the disciples, but this is the first time in which the Pharisees in Christ are actually verbally speaking with one another. Direct dialogue. And they say, Jesus, they've worked up the courage to speak to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, why do your disciples not do what other pious religious leaders in Israel do? You see, the most pious Jews of the day, they fasted twice a week. This is prescribed in the Babylonian Talmud, which was an extra-biblical, not, not, not from the Word of God, but an extra-biblical uh, written Jewish, uh, written Jewish prescriptions on how to follow the law. And in the uh, Talmud, they would, they would expand upon the law, if you will. They would read the Pentateuch. They would read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And they would expand upon it. They would write commentaries on it. 
much like we write a commentary today. And in their commentaries on the Torah, they had commented that not only is um, a, an annual fast prescribed in the Torah, which is the only fast prescribed in the, in the Old Testament, the annual fast on the Day of Atonement, but they went on to say, let's, let's fast more. Let's fast twice a week. In particular, it was Mondays and Thursdays that they fasted. You'll recall, if you know your Bibles, you'll recall the story in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus talks about a tax collector and a Pharisee and how the Pharisee looks up to heaven and says, Oh Lord, thank you, I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Twice a week. Oral Jewish tradition. Uh, written commentary, if you will, on the Torah. Extra-biblical tradition. That was their habit. The text even indicates that John the Baptist's disciple saw some merit in this endeavor. And I'm not here suggesting that there, wasn't, that there isn't merit to it. Let me be clear. And, and quite frankly, I would argue neither is Jesus Christ. It is not that fasting twice a week was wrong. It is that, that fasting twice a week for the sake of fasting twice a week is wrong. Fasting twice a week for the sake of carrying out tradition is wrong. A fast should be done at a proper time, a solemn time, a time of worship, a time of refocus, reconsideration of who God is and what He desires for that person. And the Pharisees ask Him though, how come your disciples don't follow this? What point were they trying to prove? It's rather clear that the Pharisees and the scribes believe that in order to be a righteous person, you must follow the law to the T. In order to be righteous, you must do everything prescribed, or else you cannot be a holy man, a holy woman of God. They were asking the question, how come you don't do it the way we do it? How come you don't do it the way we do it? Verse 19. Jesus says to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In response, Jesus offers an illustration. He likens Himself to a bridegroom, a groom. He likens His disciples to His friends, perhaps even groomsmen, witnessing the wedding witnessing, participating in the ceremony, if you will. Jesus goes on to ask, can the friends, can the groomsmen of the groom, can all of them fast on a day such as that? A wedding day. Well, no. Weddings are a time for feasting, not fasting. The answer is no. As long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. As long as the wedding activity, the ceremony, the day is continuing, it is unreasonable to fast. Now this marriage metaphor that we see in Mark 2, 19, 18 and 19, is a metaphor that Jesus is particularly using to help the people around Him understand who He is. You see, in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, chapters 54, 61, and 62, and also in Hosea, chapter 2, the marriage metaphor is often used between God and Israel. 
Yahweh and His chosen people Israel. Yahweh is described as the groom, the bridegroom. And Israel, His people, are described as the bride. Notice what it says in Hosea chapter 2. It says this, I will betroth you to Me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to Me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and in mercy. I will betroth you to Me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. There are very common Scriptures like this in the Old Testament. And what Jesus was subtly saying in using this illustration, though the people who heard it may not have gotten it, we don't know to what degree they understood what Jesus was saying here. But make no mistake, as we read it 2,000 years on the opposite side, we can see that Jesus here is making a veiled comment that He Himself is like the one marrying Israel. He Himself is God coming for His chosen people, desiring to enter into relationship with them, desiring to see them as His bride, desiring to be betrothed to them, to be united to them, to be covenanted with His people. Jesus, in using this metaphor, is indicating that He Himself is God who has returned to earth to to redeem His bride, His chosen people. Now, by and large, the Jews came to reject Jesus. Right? They came to reject Jesus as the Messiah. They came to reject Jesus as the Holy One of God. And so the bride metaphor we notice in the New Testament is expanded. That bride metaphor in the New Testament is expanded and enlarged to include what group? The church. Right. The church. The church is described as the bride of Christ. Now, the study of the bride metaphor and God's marriage-like relationship to both Israel and to the church is another sermon altogether. We're not going to deal with it in its entirety today. We could not do that. That would, that would take me way too much time. But let me briefly say this, that while the church, while we as the church are also called the Bride of Christ, Jesus' relationship with us in no way impedes or cancels out the coming reconciliation that will occur between God and Israel as His Bride. Israel will one day return to a right relationship with the Lord and will become the means by which all nations are blessed. Israel will return to her rightful place in human history. I refer you to Romans 9-11, through 11, as well as many, many Old Testament texts that would speak of this. So don't assume, friends, that just because the church is now called the Bride of Christ, that Israel herself is also not still looked at in that light. She is. And she will one day receive God's blessing yet again. But again, that's, that's for another sermon, another time. Back to the text at hand. Jesus makes a very striking statement in verse 20. Notice what He says in verse 20. He says, but the days will come. The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Mark this verse down in your Bibles because it is the first instance in Mark's Gospel where Jesus indicates that His earthly ministry will not last forever. There will come a day when the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, will be taken away from the wedding party. That that verb, taken away, from the Greek word apyro, 
means to take away, usually in the sense of force. That is to say that he will be forcefully taken out, forcefully removed from the wedding. While feasting, not fasting, was in order while Jesus continued on the earth, there was coming a day in which Jesus would be taken away from those participating with Him in the great spiritual wedding between God and man. Jesus is here predicting His impending death. He is suggesting early on in His ministry that inasmuch as He came to preach the message of the kingdom of God, so also He came to pay the price that that message might be accomplished. He came to die that sinners might be forgiven by the shed blood of the precious Lamb of Jesus Christ. He would be taken away by force. Friends, that, uh, just, just to be clear, that is the essence uh, of the message of salvation. As we proclaim the message of Christ to a lost and dying world, what we are telling them is that God in Christ came to earth, forcefully removed, put upon the cross at Calvary, shed His blood, the perfect Lamb of God, shed His blood once and for all for the sins of the whole world. And when we believe in Christ, we receive that forgiveness. We receive that reconciliation. We receive that eternal reconciliation that God desires for us to have in Him. I don't know if, if, uh, if there are some in this room today who may not have received that, that reconciliation yet. But I urge you, I, I pray that you would seek out Jesus Christ as your Savior. That you would recognize that Jesus has died on the cross for your sin. For the sins of the whole world. That He has paid the payment Paid the price that you could become a kingdom participant. And how do you become that participant? You believe in Christ. You trust Christ as your Savior. And when you do that, you become a child of God forever. Uh, Doug shared with me, and I'm not, uh, I don't mean to spoil his, his, glo- his, his joy next week. He's going to be sharing next week along with a few kids who uh, this last yesterday came to faith in Christ. At a, at a tour, at a, at a Christian concert and, and BMX biking tour in San Juan. Um, we have uh, some of these youth with us today, as a matter of fact. And that is an amazing thing. These young people have come to faith in Christ. They are now a child of God forever. They are now beginning that kingdom life that God would have for them. There's something new that happens when we become a child of God. Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus says that when you believe in Him, you enter into new life. You are transported from the old life to the new life in Christ. And Jesus ends on a note of newness in verse 21. Notice what He says in verse 21. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now, 
I, I've separated these two, white and, and yellow, because they're two separate little illustrations, if you will. An old garment. You've got an old garment at home. It's in your closet. What has happened to that garment as, as, as you've washed it time and time and time again? What has happened to that garment? It's shrunk, right? It's gotten a little tighter. It's gotten a little smaller. Uh, my, my Awana shirt that I got last year, it now almost no longer fits me because it's just it's too small. It shrunk about five inches on me. And, and so when we have an old garment, it shrinks, right? It shrinks. And it is in a smaller state than a, than a new garment that has not been washed. Jesus is giving an illustration here. He's likening the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's likening the old Jewish tradition. He's likening the Jewish religious leader's view of holiness to an old, shrunken garment. And he's saying there's a new patch. My teaching. There's a new, there's a new and fresh way to repair things. My teaching. My preaching. My message. And you can't take what is new, what is unshrunken, what is unwashed, and put it on an old garment that is shrunken and old and, 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 and deteriorating. Why? Because when you throw it in the wash again, that new fabric is going to shrink. And as it shrinks, it's going to tear even greater the hole that had been made in the old garment. It will not keep its size. It will shrink and the threads will burst and the tear will be made worse. Jesus says, My teaching, My message, the redemption message that I am bringing today is quite different than the old garment of Judaism. They are incompatible. They don't go together. What about the next illustration? Back in the ancient Near East, winemakers would put the wine that they had newly made and, and, and had gone through at least the first stages of fermentation, they would take that wine and they would put it in the wineskin. Put it in a, in, a, in a skin of sheep or goat skin that was wrapped large and tied at the top. And in that skin, it would undergo the final stages of, of fermentation and it would be able to be transported to the shop to be sold. And so, when it was put into that skin, new wine into, when, new, when wine was put into a wineskin, it could finish fermentation and it could be transported to the place where it would be sold and then transported to the person's home who purchased it. But there was a rule of thumb known among the winemakers of Jesus' day. Wineskins could not be used twice. They could only withstand one process of fermentation. Wineskins were not meant to undergo two fermentation processes. If they were, they would stretch thin, they would dry up, and they would burst. New, if new wine was poured into an old wineskin, that animal skin would eventually begin to crack and break thus spilling the wine and ruining that, that winemaker's ability to, to do commerce, to do business. Jesus says new wine must be put into new wineskins. 
How does this relate to the ministry of Jesus? Friends, what Jesus brought with Him when He arrived in first century Galilee was a new and vibrant Word of God. The people of Israel, who were supposed to be, they were supposed to be the people group through whom all the nations would be blessed. They were supposed to be the people group through whom all the nations would come to a knowledge of God. And yet they had largely failed their mission. Sin and death abounded. Legalism, self-righteousness, exclusivism abounded. It became the mantra of the day. The Jews had become beholden more to rules and traditions than to reconciliation, mercy, and love. And like old wineskins, cracked and dripping out precious wine, the Jewish people, their understanding of redemption was cracked and bleeding wine. They were unable to bring spiritual refreshment to the nations. So God sent Christ. He sent a new and a fresh Word of God. Jesus brought with Him the revitalized message. The message filled with hope, grace, truth, reconciliation. A message that was quite different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees whose influence was shrinking. While they gave half-hearted appeals in the synagogues and in the temples, while they proclaimed the message of life from the confines of their own holiness... Jesus Christ took it to the people. Jesus walked into the homes of sinners, tax collectors, and He accepted them before He asked them to accept Him. While the Jews fasted twice a week, paid meticulous attention to the law, Jesus declared a reconciliation feast between God and man. All of this is to say, Think outside the box. Think outside the box. That is what Jesus did in His earthly ministry. He took the message of life, the message of reconciliation, that by faith in Him, we will be reconciled to God, restored in our, to, to full humanity as God intended it. He took that message and took it where it was needed rather than proclaim it within the confines, within the safety of the synagogue and the temple. Let me say clearly, we win the world when we take Jesus to sinners. We lose the world when we keep the message of life within these walls. We win the world when we eat with love and care for homosexuals, murderers, prostitutes, sexual predators, atheists, naturalists, the handicapped, the mentally ill. We win the world when we love, care for, and dine with these people. We lose the world when we are concerned about our own piety, concerned about our own holiness. I ask what people group is there that Jesus did not die for? There is none. 
we've received a sacred trust. We've received uh, a reconciliation that we did not deserve. I do not deserve to be saved. I deserve to be condemned because of my sin. I do. And yet I've been saved by the grace of God. None of us deserve to be reconciled to God because of our sin. And yet we are. Many of us are in this room because we've expressed faith in Christ. And we've been redeemed. But no one deserves that. Make no mistake. No one deserves that. Not you who do great works of obedience. Not the sexual predator. Not anyone. No one deserves that reconciliation. And yet God, through Christ, has brought it to us. What are we going to do with that sacred trust that we don't deserve and no one else does? It seems to me that we must take it wherever it is needed. So I'm asking one simple question. One simple question today for all of us. That question is this. What are some new and fresh ways that our church can take Christ to sinners? You might substitute your name. That, that, that Neil can take Jesus to sinners. What are some new and fresh ways in which this can happen? And I, I, I've given you your outline. Those of you that take notes, um, I'm asking you today, right now, over lunch, over your week, meditate on this. Recognize where you're deficient. Recognize the people that you are least likely to take Christ to and make a commitment to change that. Purpose in your heart to take Christ to sexual predators. To take Christ to the atheist at work. To take Christ to the worst of sinners. Because guess what? You certainly didn't deserve this reconciliation. And yet you've been given it. And so as ambassadors of Christ, let us take it to those who need it. It is not the righteous. It is not the healthy that need a doctor. It is the sick. It is those who are sinners that need a Savior. May we take Jesus Christ where He needs to be. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, God, I I ask for wisdom. I ask You to guide us. We're asking a question today of ourselves and of our church. Where can we take the message of life? Where can we take this message of peace? of restoration that is found in Your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we, uh, we are trying to take this message to places and to people that are broken in sin. We've identified a few places to take it, Lord, but certainly we're deficient. Certainly there are many other places where we could take this message. Certainly there are many existing opportunities in our midst in our families, in our homes, in our workplace, in our hobbies. There are many, many places where we already are that we could recreate an opportunity to take the message of life to those environments, to reach out to those people. Father, may, we, may our hearts always break. May our eyes always be filled with tears when we consider the lost, the sinner. But for the grace of God, we would all be condemned. And so we praise Your name, Lord. We praise Your Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for us on the cross, who rose again, conquering sin and death, who has given us great peace and reconciliation by faith in Him. May we look at the world through the eyes of Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.